Today on Let the Bible Speak. The devil is in the business of counterfeiting. Today we talk about one of his counterfeits designed to keep you and me in our sins. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak. It's my privilege to join you today to open and study the divinely inspired Word of God. The statement, confession is good for the soul, is especially true when it comes to spiritual matters. In fact, it's not only good for the soul, it's essential for the soul. God makes confession of sin a prerequisite to His forgiveness of any sin. Listen to the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. He's writing to Christians here, those who have been born again. And he says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. The word if makes forgiveness conditional. And here he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, if we refuse to confess our sins, he will not forgive. Because you see, a refusal to confess our sin is a refusal to repent of that sin. It's our pride and our willful spirit that keeps us from confessing our sins to God. Now, repentance involves more than a change of behavior, though it will always result in such. Part of repentance is the act of confessing what we have done. And many misunderstand the word confession. Uh, confessing something doesn't mean that we reveal something to others they know nothing about, nor does it merely mean acknowledging something. There is more involved in what the Bible sets forth as a genuine confession of sin. And our pride often stands in the way of us doing so. And the devil tricks us into offering to God what we might call a substitute or counterfeit confession. We have in the Bible several examples of people acknowledging their sin, but in many cases their confession amounted to very little. We want to see what a true confession of sin looks like and why it is so necessary to having a right relationship with God. We're going to title the sermon today, Counterfeit Confessions, and I'll return with our study after a song from the congregation. When all of this life on earth passes away, we'll have a home on high. We will see our great Savior there calling us home to join Him up in the sky. I'm gonna wake up in Lord, who gave us His saving grace. I'm 
When you hear the word confess, what comes to mind? When we hear that someone confesses a sin, perhaps a crime, we may think of someone coming out of the shadows and bringing the truth to light. But if we stop and think about it more deeply, we'll see that confess doesn't necessarily mean to divulge something that others didn't know about, but it really means to admit what a person is already accused of. Now, it may very well be that the deeds we confess come as a surprise to some people but never in the case of God. In fact, when it comes to confessing sin to God, it goes even farther than just an admission of guilt. When the scripture says that we are to confess our sins, it means that we are to not only acknowledge our sin, but we are to openly and unreservedly agree with what God has said about our sin. When John writes in our text, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, the English word confess was the Greek word homologio. That's a compound word that means to say the same thing as another or to agree with another. Well, God doesn't need us to inform him of the fact that we have sinned. He knows that and he knows what we've done. He doesn't need us to itemize our sins so that he doesn't leave anything out or he's aware of everything. He, he knows all. But he does require that we agree with his assessment of our sin if we expect him to forgive us. If we dodge and obfuscate and deflect blame for our sin, whether it be in our own mind or in the presence of others, if we in any way refuse to be honest and take responsibility for our sins, God will withhold his forgiveness according to his word. Why is that? Why is a God who knows all about our sins, and sometimes you hear people say, well, God knows what I've done. God knows uh, I'm a sinner. God understands. But why is God so insistent that we specifically confess our sin before he extends forgiveness to us as his children? Because true and genuine confession is part of repentance. And God refuses to forgive any sin for which a person refuses to repent, you see. Now, I emphasize here the words true and genuine because there are confessions that are not really genuine. They're not true confessions. They are counterfeit. And many people go through life spiritually substituting many things. But specifically in this case, they substitute excuses, alibis, and stubborn rebellion for true humble repentance and confession before God. And it's very easy to let the devil delude us and to convince us that we have uh, come face to face and to grips with our sin, when the fact is we're really still harboring sin within our heart, and we have not come clean in the sight of God with what we are and what we have done and where we stand. And that puts an obstacle between us and God that must be removed, and it will only be removed by true repentance. Uh, people's hearts are far from God, even though they say they have sinned, but yet when they don't genuinely confess their sins as the Bible defines such, uh, it doesn't matter what they say. They're far from God and from His will. Confession and repentance go hand in hand. And you may confess sin without repenting, but you can never repent without confessing. Now, to illustrate this fact, I want us to look at several confessions that people made in the Word of God. Some of them even consist of the very words, 
I have sinned. But they weren't really confessions. They were counterfeit confessions. Let's see if we can tell the difference and then ask ourselves, have we really confessed our sins to God? Where do we stand where all of this is concerned? The first counterfeit confession I want to talk about was made by the wicked Pharaoh of Egypt during the ministry of Moses. And he made what we'll call a horrified confession. Now there's no power like God's power. And when God's power is on display, it cannot be ignored. The Egyptian Pharaoh was a powerful man himself. Egypt was a rich and powerful nation. The Pharaoh was a fierce and formidable man. The children of Israel were slaves there, as we well know, and they had been for several generations. Pharaoh had them under his control, but God wanted them released. God wanted to form them into a nation, and he wanted to give them the promised land to inhabit. It would take more than an eloquent appeal from Moses, though, to get Pharaoh to let the people go free. Uh, it would take God showing his power in an incredible way to break the will of Pharaoh and even that would not change what was in his heart. Catastrophes and disasters can bring individuals and even nations and their leaders to their knees, but still not change their hearts, still truly not turn them to God. We see that time and again in our own history. Uh, when times become frightening and difficult, when some horrendous tragedy shakes the nation and the world, you'll see a momentary revival of religious interest. Uh, but in more cases than not, people's hearts are not truly moved to repentance and thus lasting change. We see that over and over in the history of Israel, especially during the time of the, uh, of the prophets. We see this in the case of Pharaoh. When God sent Moses to declare his command to free the Hebrew people, he determined that each of these declarations would be followed by a successive series of plagues in Egypt. These afflictions and disasters would be increasingly hard on Pharaoh, and they were designed to not only punish him for his treatment of God's people, but to display God's sovereign power and his superiority over the imaginary gods the Egyptians worshipped. He turned the water of the Nile River into blood. He caused an infestation of frogs and then lice and then flies. He diseased their livestock and afflicted them with uh, terrible boils. But none of these things, none of these plagues moved Pharaoh. So God sent Moses back to Pharaoh to tell him in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 18, Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Well, some of the people listened and they brought their cattle inside, but others ignored Moses' warning. So the Bible tells us, And Moses stretched forth his hand, or his rod, toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Well, this was no ordinary storm. You didn't see it on the Weather Channel, I can tell you that. It was enough to scare anyone out of their wits, and it did Pharaoh. And so the Bible says that Pharaoh sent, and he called for Moses and Aaron. Listen to him now. He says to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Well, that sounds like this plague did the trick. It sounds like Pharaoh finally got the message, doesn't it? But he didn't. He was just shaken by the storm. But once the sun came out and the birds started singing again, he reneged on his promise. 
and he stiffened his neck again. Isn't that the way many people are even today? Have there been times when you have been frightened, perhaps for your very life? And you went to praying to God and making vows and making promises that, well, you never kept. A lot of people do that. When you thought you were having a heart attack or when you thought you might have cancer. How many people when the COVID pandemic started and the world ground to a halt and we were hearing all the frightening reports and we didn't know what the next day would hold. How many people started talking about turning to God and getting back to reading the Bible and praying? Did you say those things? Did all of that go by the wayside as the world began to return to some sense of normal? After 9-11, there was a brief religious revival in America and church buildings were full for a short time, you may remember, but it didn't last. In fact, by many metrics, we're far worse off now spiritually than we were then. What happened? People make counterfeit confessions and they cry out to God, but there's no real repentance. That is the problem, horrified confessions. But then you have what we will call a hypocritical confession. Now this was the kind of confession that was made by a sad excuse for a prophet of God named Balaam. Now I wish we had time to go into his story in great detail today and maybe we'll do that in a future sermon, but it's certainly a pathetic story to say the least. Now Balaam was a good preacher, at least that's how he appeared on the surface. You would go hear Balaam preach and you would think he could really bear down and preach the Word of God. Uh, he could be firm and authoritative and resolute and convincing. In fact, Balaam's kind of preaching was what we need today. We need the kind of sermons that Balaam preached. The problem is, Balaam was not the kind of preacher that we need. He was a hypocrite. He could preach a stirring sermon and he could call people to be faithful to God's Word while he tried to find every way around doing God's will himself. And his underlying problem was that he loved money. And if there was anything that could shake his resolve to stand for the Word of God, it was someone coming along and waving money under his nose. And that's exactly what happened here. The story is found in Numbers chapter 22. Now again, this would be a great study for us another time. For now though, suffice it to say that the king of Moab wanted Balaam to do a terrible thing as the people of God passed through that place. And he wanted uh, Balaam to curse the people of God. Now he knew Balaam had that kind of power. Well, as you might imagine, God wasn't about to do that. But the king offered Balaam a lot of money if he would go against God. And that put Balaam on the horns of a dilemma. He wanted to find some loophole that would allow him to make this deal with the king and to be right with God at the same time. No man can serve two masters, however, and Balaam immediately started to compromise his own rhetoric. He sounded good when he said he would not do one thing more or less than what God had said. But that was just a sermon, you see. He didn't really mean that. He started to wheel and deal with the king and God had to go to the extreme of sending an angel to either stop him or kill him. Now if you read the story, you learn that he was riding a donkey and God's angel appeared to the donkey but not to Balaam. And Balaam came a hair's breadth away from getting himself killed when God opened his eyes to see the angel. And when he did, it scared Balaam half to death. When he saw that angel and realized what was happening, the Bible says in Numbers chapter 22 and verse 34, Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. Well, just like Pharaoh, that sounds good. It sounds promising. But he didn't mean a word of it. 
Read the rest of the story and you'll see that he didn't mean it. He thought his confession would soften God up and get him out of trouble, but he didn't change. In fact, read on and you'll see that when he went ahead and betrayed the people of God and disobeyed the Lord, he caused a multitude of Israelites to die as a result of his treachery. Words are cheap if they're not backed up by action. And Balaam's confession was just words. Like all of his sermons, great and powerful as they may have been, his confession was just telling God what he thought God wanted to hear. But it was a hypocritical confession. And then there is the half-hearted confession. This was the kind of confession that King Saul made when he got backed into the corner in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now God had an important and clear mission for Saul, and that was to go wipe the, uh, the Amalekites off of the face of the earth. Uh, the Amalekites had done some terrible things to the people of God in the past, and God, they were a wicked people, and God wanted them absolutely annihilated. Uh, Saul was to eradicate them from the top all the way down. And God was crystal clear about what Saul was to do when Samuel delivered the message and sent Saul into battle. He wasn't ambiguous. The problem was Saul was arrogant and prideful and stubborn, and he thought he knew better than God. So when he and his men got over there and things were going like they were supposed to, well, he got the bright idea that he could just spare the king alive and bring him back as a prisoner of war and to save out the best of the Amalekites' oxen and sheep under the guise now of offering them to God as sacrifices. Well, now he sinned in all of that because that's not what God said to do. And you always sin when you do something besides what God tells you to do. When you do more than God says to do or you do less than God says to do. All of that is the very definition of sin. Now when Samuel found out about it, he went to confront Saul. And when Saul first saw Samuel, he sticks out his chest and he says, I have done the commandment of the Lord. But he hadn't and Samuel knew that he hadn't. And about that time... Off in the distance, the oxen started their lowing, and a few sheep started bleeding, and they told on Saul. He didn't have much choice now. He's in trouble, and he knows it. So much like Balaam, he backs up, and he tries another approach with Samuel. Listen to him. He says here in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 15 and verse 24, I have sinned. Well, again, you would think, great, he's seen the light. He's coming around and he's going to get right with God. But read on. He says, I have sinned because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You see what's happening here? He's not repentant. He's not accepting responsibility. He's making excuses. He's pointing fingers. Listen, when a confession of sin is laced with alibis and excuses and rationalizations and justifications... It's not a true confession. There's no repentance there. Had Saul truly confessed his sin and repented, and he could have, but if he would have done that, he would have remorsefully said, Samuel, you're right. I sin. No ifs, ands, or buts. I am without excuse. And I'm going to go right now to finish the job God sent me to do. That's not what he did. Read the story, and you'll see that Samuel had to finish the job for Saul. And he eventually lost his crown and ultimately his life because of all of that. And then let's consider the hemmed up confession. Now this was what we hear from another man in the Old Testament named Achan. Now he also said, I have sinned, but it didn't amount to much. When the Israelites surrounded and toppled the walls of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, 
God told them not to take the spoils of the city. Those belonged to him, and the people were not to take them for themselves. Achan didn't listen to Joshua, though, and he snuck into the ruins, and he stole the fine apparel and the silver and gold, and he snuck back and buried them beneath his tent. Now, he thought he'd gotten away with a great crime, and no one was any the wiser, but he, of course, forgot about the all-seeing eye of God, as so many of us do. His secret sin led to a very public and humiliating defeat, though, for his people when they tried to take the little city of Ai. God wasn't going to let uh, Achan get away with this, and he wasn't going to let the people get away with Achan's sin. He held them uh, culpable as well. God told Joshua that they failed because of sin in their camp. And so Joshua launched an investigation, and on a divine hunch, he indignantly zeroed in on Achan. He brought him out. He put him on trial. And with nowhere to run and no excuse to offer, Achan said in Joshua 7 and verse 20, Indeed, I have sinned. Apparently, though, like many people, he wasn't as sorry for his sin as much as he was for getting caught. That's how so many people are. You see, the motive for a confession is very important. There are no tears of remorse in so many cases until their sins are exposed or until they are backed into a corner and the axe of judgment is about to follow. This was the case with Achan. His pseudo-confession was no substitute for genuine repentance, for God told Joshua to kill him and his family and his livestock and to burn it all into a heap of ash. How many will cry out to God in the day of judgment simply because judgment has finally come, but not because they're truly remorseful for disobeying and sinning against a loving but yet a holy God? You see, none of these are true confessions. I told you in the beginning that the word confess means to say the same thing. That has to do with more than just words, though. It means we not only say what God says about our sin, it means in our mind, in our heart, we agree with God and we see our sin like He sees it. And friend, when we see our sin through the eyes of God, we'll find ourselves humbled, broken, and truly repentant. That's what true confession is all about. That's why true confession has no excuses, alibis, or self-justification or loopholes. True confession is looking at our sin through the eyes of a holy and offended God. And that's what leads to repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, said Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. That's the kind of confession that the prodigal son made when he was finally ruined, broken, humiliated, and alienated by his sin, and finally yearning for fellowship with his loving father. He said in Luke chapter 15, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to my father, now you want to hear a true confession, here it is. I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against thee. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and went. No excuses, no negotiating, no saying, if you hadn't been so strict, I wouldn't have left. He was not only sorry for breaking his father's heart and wasting his father's living, but he was also ready to do whatever he had to do to be right with his father. And that's the kind of realization and attitude we must have about our own sin if God is to forgive us. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy, said the wise man in Proverbs 28 and verse 13.
It's not my prerogative nor yours to judge the confession of another and whether that confession comes from a genuine heart. Only time can bear that out so far as we're concerned. If a person genuinely confesses their sin, there will eventually be fruits that are brought forth from repentance. But God immediately knows what's in our heart. He instantly knows when we confess a sin if we are truly saying the same thing about our sin that He is, and we're accepting responsibility for that sin. Have you truly repented of your sins today? Have you ever given control of your life and your heart over to the Lord Jesus Christ in gospel obedience? I want to challenge you and urge you to do that today. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He came and died on the cross to save you, and that He rose again and reigns on high, would you not submit to Him and become His disciple? Uh, would you repent of your sins today? Make the confession that He is who He says He is, the Christ, the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of your sins, and it would be our delight to help you take those steps. If you'd like a copy of today's lesson, get in touch with us and ask for the lesson, Counterfeit Confessions, and we will get that to you as quickly as we can. Thank you for joining me today for Let the Bible Speak. I hope you have a great week ahead. Make your plans to join me back here if the Lord wills for our next Bible study together. Until then, have a great week. God bless you. Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by The Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org. Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time for Let the Bible Speak.